0: Hello and welcome to the SciComm Journal Club podcast. In today's episode, we talk about SciComm activities for teens. SciComm Journal Club podcast is your one-stop shop for effective and impactful science communications approaches. At SciComm JC, we aim to help scientists integrate findings from the latest evidence-based research in social sciences and education into their outreach efforts. We curate, summarize and discuss research studies and their applications to real communications contexts in a way that scientists can easily implement. Hi, team. Hello. Hi. Hi. So today we have a special guest. Sherry, why don't you tell us first why do we have a guest and then we'll have the guest introduce themselves.
1: Sure. Every year we um, have this challenge called State Your Mission Challenge, and we invite people to submit their SciCom mission statements. And we were lucky that Cipher Teens, um, which is the name of the organization, um, submitted uh, their um, submitted their mission statement, and we're really really impressed with the quality of the work and. Um, it's just the fact that these are, uh, this organization is totally run by high school students um, and this organization won second place in in our contest and the founder, Samita, is here with us today.
2: Hi. Congratulations. <laughs> Cipher teams, awesome job.
3: Welcome. Thank you so much, everyone, for having me. Uh, my name is Samhita and I am a high school student. And I founded the organization Cyber Teens in June of 2020. And I created this organization in order to promote science communications among teens through contests, workshops, and a newsletter which interviews
0: professionals in science communication. Wow. I have to say, everyone was super impressed, not just in the team, but because we had the public voting on our Twitter account for the yeah. winners. So our peers as well were super excited about your activities. Tell us a bit more. How did you how did you get together? How did you decide to do that instead of I don't know, watching Netflix or something?
4: <laughs>
3: sure. So actually I think I, when I was in, like, middle school, and, like, most other middle school students were like me, too, I I hated writing lab reports, and I thought, like, it didn't, I didn't see the point of it, because you're doing a lab already, why would you have to write about it, but I think eventually, well, like, watching the news and sort of understanding how like science works quote unquote in the real world I realized that you kind of have to sell your science no one's Mm -hmm. gonna buy into it if you don't have an effective way to communicate it so I guess to start off I kind of decided okay maybe I should give this whole thing another try and so I sort of tried to get involved into research in high school um, and just writing more and more papers and blog style articles. And through that, I've kind of loved it more often, but again, not everyone liked it as well. It was just me who kind of dawned upon that realization. So I decided to start this with a couple of other people who are also passionate about science communication. And now I think we're definitely trying to increase at least awareness of teens in science communication.
0: Wow. Well, you already have a couple of years at least ahead of uh, everyone who is Uh, a professional scientist. So (laughs) kudos for that. And you and Maria hosted a chat on Twitter not long ago. Um, Tell us Maria a little bit more about the topic of that chat, please.
2: Yes, uh, definitely. First, I just want to say a real huge, like, wow, uh, amazing job, uh, guys, because uh, when I started my psychom efforts, it was at the very last year of my PhD degree, and I was thinking, Same. this is backwards.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm
2: like, wait a second. <laughs> the more you learn, the more complex information you finally understand, the harder it gets to explain it to others. So awesome, awesome initiative. Well, okay, so for this Twitter chat, uh, so we discussed a 2020 article published in the journal Health Communication. And it's titled, We Need the Lens of Equity in COVID-19 Communication. So I'll summarize this article rather briefly right now. And then we can, of course, all chime in about the different key points made in it and further discuss uh, what happened during the chat, because it was awesome. All of you guys contributed really, really great points. So in this article, authors talk about how disinformation on COVID had become mainstream and what role public communication has in such an emergency from the lens of equity. So first, the article discusses how the multiple consequences of COVID have disproportionately affected underserved groups all around the world. And the pandemic has really highlighted the importance of public communication as a tool in promoting this non-pharmaceutical interventions, right? Like things we've seen, like social distancing, Mm. mask wearing, at a time where there was just no vaccines or treatments that were not available yet. And so they note how, well, something like the spread of misinformation has been talked about plenty <laughs> right away. Uh, not much attention has been given in a timely manner to the issue of inequalities in communication. In fact, the discussion, they, they talk about how the discussion of health inequalities related to COVID didn't really manifest until at least April 2020. So it took months. And so what's unusual about COVID and makes it particularly vulnerable to this communication inequities is that first things happened so fast, there was no lag time between discovery of new information and a like well thought out calibrated dissemination mm-hmm. of this information science was happening under intense public scrutiny right and we know how sometimes it's when you're a scientist and you really do the labs and whatnot you're used to the uncertainty you're used to the fact like okay something changed but when it's all like that in the public view it looks as if you don't know what you're doing which is not quite true so the authors note that this is truly the first pandemic of the social media age and uh, we've seen information spread without the usual filtering that happens. So what were some specific challenges with this pandemic? Um, well, we're all probably noticed, all of us here, that um, it's the thing that they call the spiral of amplification. So you get misleading pieces of information from uh, often obscure corners of the internet, and they enter the mainstream and suddenly become a part of public discourse. This was especially interesting in the past year with the political situation, with some, you know, uh, high-ranking public people sharing that information and you know, uh, giving it um, some backing. So it's this mainstreaming of misinformation and disinformation that happens, uh, the spiral of amplification. And let me just really quickly give the definitions because I always forget. So misinformation is the information that's contrary to scientific consensus, basically. And disinformation is the deliberate spreading of false information for political ends. So taking this into consideration, the authors raise the question, is the volume and flow of scientific information having a differential impact on different socioeconomic groups? And of course, they talk about more systemic research is urgently needed. But you know, even now with the research that is out there, we can understand that the spread of information on COVID would not be uniform across groups. And authors do give some examples of why that wouldn't be the case. So one of them is communication inequalities or the differences among social groups in how they access, process, and use information. So here we talk about health outcomes being influenced not just directly by the virus, obviously, but both by directly and indirectly through awareness, knowledge. Mm -hmm. And another point is that upper socioeconomic groups tend to acquire information faster than other groups. So Mm -hmm. so there was this discussion like, oh, technology is going to democratize information because, you know, everybody Mm -hmm. can access the stuff online and social media. There's still a disparity. So at the end of the day, the paper calls for more empirical work on the topic, uh, how misinformation and disinformation begins, spreads, what consequences it has and of course, health communication inequalities, inequities. And it really highlights how, in a way, unacceptable it is that this discourse on inequities during the pandemic arose months into it. So really great choice for an article. And Samira, it's, it's actually a really easy and fast read. I loved it. It's not very long, but it packs a lot of important points. What key things stood out to you from this article?
3: I completely agree that it was a pretty quick read and it I guess it wasn't like a traditional experiment related article, but I still think that it sort of dove deep into an issue that isn't really discussed in mainstream media because mainstream media often discusses that misinformation and disinformation exist. Mm -hmm. They, I, at least in my experience, I haven't seen it evaluate sort of which groups are getting more exposed to this misinformation or disinformation, and which groups are not getting as exposed to it. And I believe a point in the article that the authors made is that whites without college degrees scored higher than blacks with college degrees on a science knowledge test. And I think that just goes to show that this problem of inequity in access to appropriate information is generational. It's not just, as you said, because technology is there and that Information is democratized. That doesn't mean that everyone has suddenly has equal access yeah. to appropriate information. Um, yeah. And I guess one more thing that I wanted to point out was that, and that the article stated, is that it's hard to differentiate between disinformation and misinformation. And I just think that this could be an avenue for potential further research. Yeah.
2: yeah. That's really great points. And uh, one thing I was thinking about this, and I think there's some uh, articles who already cited this one, and they're just discussing things that, well, make sense to all of us. uh, One of them being, you know, you also, you you want science communicators, of course, out there, but they, they need to be more diverse, right? So that different groups, have people they listen to, they trust. There's similarities, right? We're we all, you know, I'm an anthropologist, so we know people flock together. They, they like people who are like them. And yeah. that's where you need this diversity in science communication. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, what, what about Sherry, Heather, Navina? What did you think?
1: Well, I thought the uh, distinction between the point about distinction between misinformation and disinformation is really important because the response to them the way you respond to these two different things um, would be different. And the people who disseminate misinformation versus disinformation Mm -hmm. are probably the ones who started. uh, The really loud voices are probably different types of people. So um, really the response would be different to them. And also with respect to disparity, just what Samita was saying reminded me of Um, the conversation we had a while ago about uh, the fact that most of science is taught in English, but around the world, um, there's many people, there are many people who don't speak English or they don't learn science in English or they don't even, maybe don't understand English, which is currently like in India. It seems to be a huge problem. Uh, and I, I saw on Twitter an effort to um, translate correct scientific information into mm-hmm. different languages in India. So don't people fall, uh, don't fall mm-hmm. for misinformation. Right. And uh, that's there's also a, uh, also another uh, I don't want to go too long, but I just I just thought this was so relevant. Uh, during the presidential, last presidential election, a lot of this information was spread uh, and targeted towards uh, people who speak and understand Spanish. So they specifically targeted that audience uh, because that's where they they get their news from Spanish speaking news channels. So that's kind of a, a different kind of um, disparity that people who want to spread yeah. this information, they oh. exploit.
3: And I guess I just wanted to jump in really quickly. Um, When you talked about how there's a disparity in English speakers and non-English speakers in science, I I just thought of this. So a lot of the major science research journals, to my knowledge, are in English. So it's hard for, I guess, non-native English speakers to sort of read these studies or even summaries of these studies and sort of corroborate any sort of information that they get so that's definitely something that needs to
0: be worked yes. on Absolutely,
3: translating these major even
0: for native english speakers <laughs> yes, how many native english speakers can read scientific <laughs> that's papers true. That's,
3: that's true yeah. Sci- that's true that's yes. true that's so true yeah it's the language is often pretty complicated so <laughs>
2: this is a great topic i just want to make, mention we did have a twitter chat on this as well and i believe navina and i uh navina bulgarian for you russian for me we, we, we kept trying to yes. kind of uh do that in our psych homework and it is a lot of work you know but that's how it starts yeah. um translating this things so.
1: yeah i try to uh because i have uh my friends and family and even now Mm -hmm. stranger iranians they follow me so i try to translate what i post into english so post it in two different languages and it is hard but Mm -hmm. it's worth the the effort
0: do you have non-english speakers in in cypher teens or do you have people who speak another language in english as well
3: yeah, so while everyone does have, like, does have English as their, I guess, first language, or they're all familiar, pretty familiar with it, several of our team members speak another That's language. Awesome. So, and including me, I speak another language at home <laughs> right. too.
0: So, yeah. <laughs> language is only one thing that we need to consider while. Um, trying to include different people from from our society. And I'm pretty sure that Heather has uh, other aspects to include here. So what what do you have for us, Heather?
4: So this paper was really interesting because it addressed the impacts of misinformation and disinformation. But there's a lot of different reasons and a lot of different ways that misinformation and disinformation can actually spread. And of course, there's a lot of different sources of that. And one of those things uh, that came up during our Twitter chat was about the extent of systemic issues that contribute to the spread of misinformation and disinformation, um, particularly that misinformation and disinformation has been legitimized by official sources, including our previous US presidential administration. Uh, And that in and of itself has substantially changed the nature of misinformation and disinformation because it was coming from top officials and key institutions in our government that were previously seen as trusted sources by the public. And so this has made it a lot harder for the public to distinguish between credible and non-credible information. Mm. So solutions like increasing public outreach and enhancing science education or initiatives to expose people to scientists to help with the goal of building greater trust are super, super, super impactful and can help reduce susceptibility to misinformation and and disinformation, Uh, but I'm not sure that those necessarily get at this particular issue of that, of the spread of these things being promoted by legitimate sources. And so while I know this was beyond the scope of the article, I think it's important for us to have a robust discussion when we talk particularly about inequities in science communication, especially those that have real health impacts, to focus on those structural inequities that run deeper and then actually are embedded within our legitimate institutions. What say you all?
2: Yeah, it's such
4: a good point. I just, uh, I can't
2: think um, about all the political, uh, sorry, um, public opinion work, right? Often you start looking at public opinion by political affiliation, and I just feel like this got so hijacked, right? Um, certain people—that's uh, why I was so yeah. easy. Uh, it's already a set of beliefs, a certain loyalty to a party, and then when this information comes in, it's so
4: much easier to spread. And
2: gosh, um, I'd like to know what to do about that. And I think yes, that's the, the
4: challenge: is, is that you know these are legitimate you know, trusted sources. And so at the moment, you know, the big initiative mm-hmm. and, and the big, you know, I think challenge for for the science community, um, but also for those that are, you know, in within our new presidential administration is to rebuild that trust, both in government, and then scientists, you know, obviously in the institution of science and key institutions that do science. And that's a long haul. And I think that, We need to have those conversations that are deeper among ourselves in the science communication and science communities, respectively, to figure out how do we actually do that? Because once you lose trust, it's really hard to rebuild that.
3: I I would just like to jump in really quickly here. When you talked about losing trust in the scientific community, what really kind of stood out to me was the fact that a lot of vaccine hesitancy kind of stems from past experiences with like science and medicine and I read this book I think a year or two ago called um it it was about Henrietta Lacks and how her um her cells were essentially manipulated without consent and I think events like those that happened a long time ago, mm-hmm. to the right. black community and and really any community in the United States would haunt future generations and kind of cause them to doubt or suspect um scientific innovation like a vaccine. so i I completely agree that
4: building back their trust takes a lot of time and that's an interesting point that you bring that because yeah. what that really you know h- highlights is that different groups do yeah. to Inequities in society and that are permeated through our actual systems and institutions have different baselines for trust.
3: Yeah. Then, That's why
2: I'm thinking that diversity in who communicates science is so huge, right? And I know there's been a lot of um, effort to connect yeah. communities and scientists to try to do these things, right? Have community representatives involved because they're the ones who can communicate better with people. So we just need more, I think more that, of that, I suppose.
1: Mm. Oh, no, go ahead, sure. Yeah, I'd like to throw a... Sorry, go ahead. I just would like to throw a little silver lining here in that I'm so encouraged by uh, seeing scientists um, and experts coming out with, uh, I mean, we say that this is the first pandemic of the social media age and it amplifies this information, but I'm encouraged by seeing all these different organizations and efforts that are happening by experts to come out to speak to people, not only in health communication, but also in political science. Just the past four years in combination between uh, our former guy and uh, the pandemic, it's just, I feel like it's been a wake up Mm -hmm. call. It shook people up to sit up and pay more attention. And that, i just i'm just so encouraged for by seeing so much that's why science communication is so important that's why we do what we do at uh, at Scicom jc we want to help as many uh scientists or anybody even if you're not a scientist and you want to s- communicate science as many of you out there uh to talk to people because most people really they are looking for answers to their questions. And another thing that this uh, pandemic brought up and the previous administration brought up is the way our society is put together and the inequitable ways that we do things. So to to create meaningful change in health communication and also in Uh, addressing Mm -hmm. lack of equity is to fundamentally change the way we do things, just like the fundamental change we need for climate change. (laughs) It's like lack of equity
0: is baked into our system. Um, Yeah, and to be honest, it, it made me think just yesterday, I think it was that this pandemic basically served as the disruptive event that we often see, for example, in technological progress where you have one discovery that suddenly spikes Mm. a wave of discoveries based on it and kind of technological progress has been going on on that kind of waves. Yesterday, completely by chance, I actually saw um, kind of a, uh, it was a bit of a tacky infomercial type of clip with Barack Obama, Mike Tyson, and I don't remember who was the other guy, that were basically encouraging The African-American population to go and vaccinate and I think it was Mike Tyson who ended up saying something along the lines like let's forget for a moment what happened in the past uh trust the scientists of today and go vaccinate yourself and I I have to admit uh, as much as it pays me it took me a, a good minute to even realize what he was talking about. And I I realized that that was also a blind spot that I had. So it kind of gave me hope that more people like me and like us here um, kind of uh, discovered more blind spots because everyone has them and it's okay as long as you you work to to find them and to correct that. Uh, But yeah, there's so much Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. we usually take for granted that we understand about each other and basically the past year showed us that it's really not the case.
4: Absolutely and I think that's important because we need to be talking openly about these issues. This needs to be part of not just our professional discourse but also in a lot of ways this needs to be a part of our broader democratic discourse Um, and you know the role of science communication Mm. in democratic discourse I think is something that I personally haven't seen a lot of um, come up in the science communication space and perhaps it's there. So if any of our listeners actually have, you know, suggestions on who to follow or great papers on this topic, please do share them. Um, Definitely, definitely interested. But I think questions, those bigger, broader questions about what our role is, you know, within society to address inequities and to to ensure a healthy and informed public that ultimately can make reasonable voting decisions, because at the end of the day, that is the role of the public. And so, you know, questions around what's the role of the public for engaging in that deliberation about key issues, scientific issues that matter, that are also policy issues, climate change, Sarah, you pointed that one out, obviously everything public health health related. Um, That's hugely important. Mm. And so I, I wonder, you know, if we just haven't gotten there yet, or if that's just something that maybe, you know, the science community hasn't necessarily seen as sort of part of its broader responsibility. So I just want to put that out there as food for thought. Um, I don't know the, the answer to that. Um, but I think it's something that that maybe we're we're sort of mm-hmm. slowly moving into as an area of research, but also again, hopefully as an area of actual practice through our open discussions.
0: Thank you, Heather. And talk about movement. Um what are our calls for actions around the table here based on, on this paper and on the discussion that we had with Cy 14s? <laughs> a little bit of a rant to
1: begin with. <laughs> I'm kind of uh, kind of hearing that we need more research because if we really spend time uh, and take the time to want to learn and dig into the books that are out there, the documentaries that are out there. The information is there. We just need to go learn that information and uh, start recognizing our own biases and the historical events that led us to where we are in terms of disparities and start informing one another. One thing that I heard during this past time when, when the, the officer who killed George Floyd was, um, was con- uh, how do you say it, convicted, and then there was this conversation uh, by Black folks, and one conversation that I kept hearing was that we are tired of explaining, the Black community was saying, we're tired of explaining this to you. Uh, you come, like, keep asking our questions about what to say, or, or you, you expect us to guide you to know what to do. It's your responsibility. It's you go ahead, if you are a white ally, go and um, <clears throat> read mm-hmm. books and learn about our history and talk to each other and inform each other. I think as a call to action, Um, those of us who are in the positions of privilege, those of us who have the financial means to put our kids in a better position, we are privileged to have more access to information, to ability to make decisions as to who's going to be in power in terms of voting right now. There's so much effort is going on to suppress voting. Those of us, um, Uh, those of us uh, can do our part to start educating one another just just start with Netflix I mean one of the things that really opened my eyes was about this documentary about the history of how uh, the voting Mm. uh, for the black community has been suppressed and same kind of things are happening so let's Yeah, inform yourself and inform others. And you have social media that is so powerful to spreading misinformation. Let's use that to spread good information.
3: If I may jump in really quickly, I think what you said was spot on. Um, Although I do think that it, like, just as a person who goes to school right now, I feel like a lot of at least in history classes, a lot of things that we talk about tend to be centered around white history or Eurocentrism. Oh, and uh, there are definitely efforts being made to kind of stray away from that. I, I can see that right now. And what I think we're it's good that we're talking about things from a different perspective. Although today in terms of vaccine hesitancy. We haven't really talked about the, like what has led people to be hesitant um, from getting vaccines or anything like that. We haven't truly covered the extent of intergeneral racism that a lot of communities in America and the world have gone through. And I I don't necessarily, like, I know a lot of my teachers personally, they are very passionate about certain issues and that they would talk about it if they had more time. And the unfortunate thing is like a lot of the teachers are just boxed by standardized test requirements. Mm-hmm. And so they just don't have enough time to talk about a lot of these things. So I think the the way to solve this in schools should come from like of course the teachers they're trying but like whoever designs the curriculum for these standardized tests needs to really evaluate how they're making these tests
0: absolutely that's an amazing point thank you for making it and it's not even just the test it's the the whole yeah. curriculum curriculum on which those tastes uh, tests are based on um It's true that (laughs) this old saying that history is written written by the winners, but in the end of the day, that was the case 100 years ago. (laughs) Does it mean that it has to be the case today (laughs) when we still have quite a lot of information, both from written and unwritten sources? Uh, But but we know that there are valuable sources that we can integrate in in study programs, not just in school, but in university as well. I think that it's long overdue to, to have a complete overhaul on, on um, school subjects, especially like history.
1: Yeah, with respect to politics, if I could plug in this fantastic history professor, Heather, I think her last name is Richardson. Yeah. yeah. And she's been uh, holding people's hands and explaining our uh, history and politics and what are bills bills mean and what is this or other means that is going on in congress and she has uh probably single-handedly has informed Mm -hmm. so many people and that just her work is so valuable and if you can if we can just get 10 or 20 of those these kind of history professors to come to Facebook and she is her main platform is
0: Facebook. And we are, are so much better educated mm, yeah. because And of to come back to what you were saying, Sherry, about being tired that, of hearing that we need more research, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And yeah. I don't understand exactly why and for how long are we going to hide behind this? So, yes, there would always be a need for more research on every single topic. It would never, Knowledge will never be exhausted <laughs> pretty much in, in any discipline. But that doesn't yeah. mean that we have to sit on our books and behind our computers writing all the papers and doing all the research and ending always that we need more research. So mm-hmm. I, I can't do anything about it. No, we can do plenty with the knowledge we already have. But at the same time, we can keep working to gather yeah. more knowledge on what we want to know.
4: Absolutely. And I agree with all of these points that have been made and these ideas and solutions. And really, at the end of the day, it's it's up to us, you know, if we can't, you know, get additional content into schools right away due to time limits um, or at the moment, Zoom attention spans. um, You know, it's something that I think each of us needs to feel an individual responsibility for, um, you know, teaching ourselves the things that are not taught through official sources Mm -hmm. um, or through those official you know, formats, um, if you will. And I think that's, you know, also the other piece of this is that, yeah, as scientists, we, you know, we always are curious, we wanna do research and we have all all the data to back the things up before we, we make a move, but we know what the impacts are. We know there are real health disparities, there are critical health impacts. We know what these things actually look like. And so I would just suggest that, you know, as scientists, we also see ourselves sort of as part of this broader, um, you know, social and political movement to create a better world. Honestly, I, I know that sounds a little sort of like cliche, but mm-hmm. that is really why we're here and why we're doing what we're doing. And certainly that's, you know, why we exist here at SciComm JC is to to hopefully make a better world through what we're doing. But I would ask, <laughs> yeah, can I finish? <laughs> But I think you know scientists really need to work with policymakers more closely because mm. we're collecting the data, but we wanna make sure that, that information is actually usable. So that's not only science communication, but it is actually an active role in policymaking if we let it. Yeah.
1: So thank you, Heather. Sorry for interrupting you. Um, my other rant is about related to we need more research is that in the science communi- science communication field, we do a lot mm. of reinventing the wheel. I mean, people who do social science like Heather does social science. And I'm sure Maria Maria has done quite a bit. There is so much information out there about how people relate to information, how they respond to it, <laughs> all this stuff. Let's go and read them and apply them. Instead of trying to do the same kind of research, but just, but for science. I mean, not instead, yeah. in addition yeah. to. <laughs> oh, uh,
2: yeah, I completely agreed. Sometimes I wonder, <laughs> is this just another like, hey, there's this opportunity for more research and publishing because that's what we do. Yeah, and I'm like, okay, let's also do something yes. about it. Anyway, yeah. and so I agree. And my conclusion is, um, well, we talk about the infodemic in this paper, and I feel like each of us here, probably our listeners, has felt it during the last year, right? We've seen family and friends pick up views, we're like, oh, no, oh, no, I need to kind of try to explain, maybe, if I have the mental energy. And I'm not sure how exactly to build um, this army of counterinfodemic that we discussed during the Twitter chat, right? There's individual people out there like uh, the your friendly neighbor epidemiologist on Facebook, right, mm-hmm. great work. Um, so I just want to say, mm-hmm. each yeah. Homer can play a crucial role, like a little node in their little social network, right? We do have the power because of our personal connections to yeah. disrupt this flow of bad information, at least to some degree, at least for some people. And we shouldn't underestimate that. Our personal connections to people in our lives do play a huge role sometimes more than the facts or the things we know and share and I mean we just presented at the AAAS this February um, the American Association for the Advancement of Science about this importance of communicating with values Mm -hmm. so we need to use that I think in this uh, to counter the spiral of amplifications that the author talk about
0: yeah Thanks, Maria. Cypher teens, last chance for call to action. Because you're the ones who are disrupting the the status quo at the moment. So now is your time to ask for stuff. I I just think that um, the
3: infodemic was real in the sense that some of my family members who didn't necessarily have the knowledge about this pandemic um, or falling for certain things, including certain myths about the vaccine, which you have to kind of explain mm-hmm. to them that this is not how it works. Um, I would say that what we are doing as an organization is to encourage um, fellow teens to make sure their sources are credible in that they come from like research papers or like government or educational websites, mm. not just other random sources. Um, <laughs> so I think I think that just trying to find a credible source to verify a certain piece of information you get could go a long way in preventing the misinformation you receive about a certain issue. And I think that should be encouraged from a young age which we're trying to do so that like when you
0: do end up becoming mm-hmm. an adult it's yeah, a habit thank you, you so much for this point point. <laughs> and thank you for coming to talk to us today unfortunately <laughs> there's all the time that we have we have though some information from sherry about our next twitter chat
1: Yeah, excuse me. Our next tutor chat is gonna be um, about this little paper that I found, uh, which is quite relevant to what we talked about. And there's this uh, scientist who did a little bit of research in the language that is used in scientific communication and he's uh, spotted some really troublesome language. And uh, so we're gonna talk about that. Our third winner for the third place winner for the state your mission challenge is going to be our guest and so we can continue next time uh, we can continue the same you know i mean a conversation similar along the lines of what we talked about today to see how we can create change by encouraging the change of language and
0: we can talk about more about that awesome next time uh, my call for action would be for side 4 teens to stay in touch with us and uh keep us posted on their uh, new stuff so we can amplify <laughs> their voice their young voices as well again big of thank course. you for everything you're doing and for coming to of talk course. to us and for submitting your mission statement to our contest it was really lovely having you
3: <laughs> yeah yeah Thank you so much for having me on this. I think the discussion we had was really insightful and definitely looking forward to stay in touch with you guys in the future.
2: You guys do fantastic work. It's, I'm just so inspired. This was awesome. <laughs> but I, I
4: can't wait to see what y'all come up with. <laughs>
0: Okay, so uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Psycom underscore JC to participate in our future activities. Subscribe to our newsletter as well to receive updates for all our upcoming events, Twitter chat, post- podcast releases and summaries, and all sorts of other interesting psychomy topics that are going on on the website as well. To do that, go to the website www.psychomjc.org. This podcast is recorded by the SciComm Journal Club team. It's produced and edited by me, Ivana Christozova, and our music is from Audio Jungle. Thank you for joining this 22nd episode of the SciComm JC podcast. If you liked it, let us know and please share it with your friends. Till next time and stay nerdy.